Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Jill and I work from the idea that love is perhaps the most important or most most fundamental value through which we should perceive the world. We review a bit about the nature of love, how love isn't really what the world seems to think it is, and then we jump into what I think is perhaps the most interesting result of looking at the world through the eyes of love or having love as an evaluative outlook. That is that there must be a trinity at the source of being. And this embrace of the Trinity as the source of being unites what we might call the twin demands of our lives, that is, love and truth. There's a bit in here about legalism and licentiousness and more references to mushrooms than is probably appropriate, but the goal is to show how grounding our perceptions in love affects both apologetic method and content. Now, Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Come visit tacticalfaith.com to find blogs, news, and our other podcast, TF Radio, which includes some great interviews with some great apologists and scholars, as well as just some interesting discussions about everything from apologetics to current events. We at Wondering Toward Wisdom and Tactical Faith are all volunteers, donating our time uh, and our money as well. If you'd like to see more and maybe better content or just feel sorry for us, please consider donating at tacticalfaith.com. And if you don't have money, we'd love your prayers. And if you think we're far too annoying to pray for, then send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. I'm here today with Joel Schwartz, uh, as we always are. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I'm Travis and Joel's here with me as we normally are. I keep repeating myself. Uh, and we are going to continue on T- today. We're, you know, we've sort of been threatening that we're going to get into some weird territory. And I think today we're actually going to do that because we're going to talk a little bit about how, evalu- how a particular evaluative outlook in fact functions to cause us to see the world differently. We're going to have to do a lot of qualifications here because we will in it is inevitable that we will be misunderstood, and we'll probably explain a little bit about why that will be the case. Uh, anyway, this might get a little bit heady. Um, if you have shrooms, uh, hopefully they're not the illegal kind, and you're just talking about uh, pizza. Um, I probably just need to cut all this out. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> in any case, so this might get a li- the whole point is this might get a little bit weird, uh, but but bear with us. Hopefully we can explain it clearly enough to make some sense of it because there are some major moves in contemporary epistemology that that we're tracking that we're partly tracking along with and developing stuff with Esther Lightcap Meek, some stuff from Zagzebski and other people who have done work in intellectual virtues um, and how there are they're an attempt to recover epistemology from the disaster that was uh, that was enacted upon it by one Edmund Gettier. Um, Yes, as well as logical positivism, which was just a disaster in itself. So, and not Wittgenstein's fault, and not Wittgenstein's fault. He likes poetry, and he likes poetry. So, um, so anyway, uh, I apologize for this sort of weird start. But so we we ended last time by talking a lot about love, and because what we're trying to do is we're trying to point. We we've we've begun this whole series talking about evaluative outlook po- apologetics by by kind of being a. Uh, giving a response to to a, sort of a response, an evaluation, you might say, of Rhett and Links, of the Ear Biscuits podcast and Good Mythical Morning, their their sort of uh, what they describe as their deconstruction of the faith. And I know everybody and their brothers done this, but we're doing it better than everybody else. Uh, and it's we're sort of touching on it. We're not really building a lot a lot off of it, but we are taking some central points and trying to work with them. But the primary central point is. The way that we do apologetics, generally speaking, I think the way that we do apologetics is is needs to be tweaked, you might say. Uh, tweaked in a very significant manner that may not look a lot different in a lot of the concrete application, but in terms of the way we fundamentally look at it, I think it needs to change. That's part of what Joel and I are trying to get at. Um, and this evaluative outlooks element is a big part of it. We've talked about what evaluative outlooks is. Uh, but let's do a quick review of a couple points. Uh, so the first question is what the blast is an evaluative outlook and what does that have to do with anything? So an evaluative outlook is a way of seeing the world, a, a 
the way of perceiving the world sometimes might be a better way to think of it. Uh, Because when we just say see the world, we're like, well, I I look at my window, I see a tree, I see a fence, you know, we, we focus on the objects that we see. Whereas when we talk about perception, we're, we're open to the idea of it being a, a broader picture, things that involve our values, that involve our experiences. Um, but either way, an evaluative outlook is that richer sense that when you, it's the understanding that when you experience the world, you're experiencing it through a set of values, through your experiences, through, um, through, your, through beliefs, through, I mean, all these different things. And it's not just a this neutral thing that we can can talk about, but rather it is a, a particular perspective of the world laden with value uh, that, that and, and the goal of an, of an evaluative outlook is to see the world as truly as one can see it, include, which involves the way that values shape our perceptions so that we can see the world as it really is. Yeah. So this is so part of what you're saying is it is impossible to look at the world except through values. Right. Values inform they give they give form to the way that we perceive. And you can't get away from this not even if you're a, a lover of science. I love science. I think it's really cool. In fact, I was watching something by uh Lawrence Krauss the other day about how they found dark matter and how they weigh the weigh the galaxy and it was fantastic. Just when he starts talking about religion, he's silly. Evaluative outlooks are, that's the way, that's, those are the sets of values that we, that we use to perceive the world and, and the kind of values that are, that give rise to the perception that helps us understand science or that gives us science. Well, there could be some debate about that. And Joel and I even debated about what those values are, what precisely that value is. It's a little bit complicated and it sounds really negative and I don't want to, I don't mean for it to sound negative. So I'm just not going to say anything. Maybe another podcast. But you can look at, you can read Kuhn and all these other guys that we talked about earlier in the podcast, earlier in our first podcast that we sort of did, um, if you want to look back on those. Um, Kuhn, Quine, Wittgenstein, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so those people who are, they talk about the values that that are related to to the holding of, of scientific theories and so on and so forth. Okay. So we have evaluative outlooks, and part of part of the goal of evaluative outlooks is not merely to perceive the world. It's exactly what everybody has always said, and that is to try to perceive the world as it is, but to perceive the world as it is or as close to as it is as we possibly can. It's not about being neutral. It's about having the right values. Right. Okay. So, so – now, we could have a bunch of questions about what precisely the right values are, and, uh, and I think we're going to try – I'm going to make sort of a claim here, but let's, let's take another step back and just talk about what we talked about last week. We talked about the nature of love because one of the central things that it's hard to disagree with Rhett and Link on is that love is absolutely important. And that one of their problems with Christianity was that their view of Christianity was causing them to be handicapped in their capacity to love other people. Now, I'm going to take their word for it that their view of Christianity was in fact causing them to be incapable of loving, which suggests to me that their view of Christianity is off. And it suggests, maybe I should, maybe I should put it this way. It suggests to me that, if the, that the values that they hold in their perception of Christianity were off. Yeah, but I'm not sure that they are uniquely off, um, but rather yes. they might be a a uh, too accurate um, uh, uh, evaluation of a lot of American Christianity today. Yes. And in fact, I don't know if we can get into all this, but I think even the way we do apologetics feeds into this a little bit. Yes. But this is a, this is a big topic. Maybe we'll be able to get to it. Let's see. Let's see what we can do. Okay. So this, the thing we talked about last time was the nature of love. And you had a great response from, or a great sort of def- definition-ish sort of description from Dallas Willard. And then we talked about how Rhett and Link's view of love is perhaps flawed, as is most of our, most of the way, most of the way most of us view love is in fact uh, severely flawed, right. not just a little bit flawed, but majorly flawed. So what does Willard say? According to Willard, to love another person is 
to uh, act toward their good, toward their true good. And you know, we, we fleshed that out a little bit more and that, you know, loving a person requires to know what their good is, um, what, and that their good is sort of the fulfillment of, of who they can be, um, which may or may not be something that they desire for themselves, but it requires relationship because you can't know that about a person if you aren't in meaningful relationship with that person. Um, and if you aren't in meaningful re- relationship with that person, the kind of thing that you can know for sure is that person is created in the image of God. And so they're, they're valuable and uh, we should treat them as someone who's created in the image of God um, rather than trying to tell them that we know uh, conclusively best what they need. And um, that true, that really loving someone requires relationship. When you don't have relationship there, the standard is, of, of what love is, is uh, very narrow because you just don't know, you can't act towards the good of the, of the person. And, and we talked about this many, many podcasts ago where we talked about how even the perception of a person requires an active imagination. Um, you can't see their subjectivity. So you, right. you engage the imagination to perceive personhood. And that's actually a good thing. Um, right. And, and, uh, and you know, I think, I think this is, you know, the apostle Paul reflects this when he calls himself the worst of all sinners. And that's because when, when he looks at other people, I, at least the way I, I read that is when he looks at other people, he can give, find a way to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, he can, he can imagine some sort of life experience or something that has happened to them that has led them to act in this bad way. But with himself, he, he knows that he's making these decisions himself and he can't, he can't imagine that he's doing something that he's not doing or, you know, vice versa. And so, um, you know, that, I think that's what, what, what Paul is doing when he says he's the worst of all sinners is he's not saying, I know for a fact I'm the worst of all sinners. What he's saying is from my perspective, I can't explain away my sin, but I can make the effort to try and explain it or to make other sins more understandable, more justifiable. And I think there's something really uh, valuable about instead of looking for things to criticize about other people and giving no one the benefit of the doubt of living in a way where you give everyone much more benefit of the doubt than you give yourself. Yeah. That's almost the reversal of Genesis three, where Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent. Um, instead of sort of like, instead of, you know, I can justify my own action, but I can't justify the other person's action. They clearly did wrong. Right. Uh, Paul says, I know my, I know me and I know I chose this. So that's good. Okay. So, so there are other elements about, about love too. And that is that love is not related or the good of a person is not merely where they are. Um, but it has to do with the growth and, and, and to put it in, in simple Christian, I mean, we're, we're, we're bringing Christianity into this. Um, it's recognizing, recognizing that we are not who we are. That is, I can't, I can't declare I am who I am, right? There's a sense in which what I am has not yet been revealed. There's hints of it and we're being, and I'm being drawn toward it. And I have the raw material, a lot of the raw material to be working with, but I'm being called. And we know this. I mean, even if you remove Christianity from it, we all have a sense that there's ways in which we can develop and grow and become better. Right. And that's simply acting on simply having the, the, the love that Rhett and Leek seemed to be talking about was something like giving people a sense of happiness that comes from the fulfillment of their present desires as they are as well as maybe achieving some successes that they're aiming for. But it's, it's, I mean, now I'm taking a lot of, I'm, I'm inferring a little bit based on how they speak about things. I am inferred. They didn't come out and say this. So I am inferring a little bit. And and one thing I want to add to that is the, that the individual is the one who defines who he or she wants to become that there's, that there's nothing about, um, and no external force or person or situation that should um, determine what someone uh, what someone's goals and desires are. Um, so that the the for Rhett and Link, it's very much about loving the person where they're at, where they want to go, and um, a an endorsement, a a support of 
of of that person in the fullness of of what they presently are and presently desire. Yeah, it's sort of a an affirmation of the person as a as an individual to determine their own trajectory and nature, something like that. Right. And I mean, um, this, this is, this is a, a view of, of the human person that uh, is very pervasive in Western culture. Um, you know, not just in the U S but in, in Europe, um, this, this idea of the autonomous individual determining his or own, his or her own good, uh, the goals, all those kinds of things. That's something that um, much of Western political theory has embraced at the at the core. So the, we're 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 not saying that Rhett and Link have have this uh, unique idea that of a person that um, that makes no sense. What what we're what we're saying is no no. They're, they're, this is in the water. This is this is everywhere. This is you know the the big focus on you know liberty above all else. That that is what what you know our political system is is largely based on and not just ours but much of western culture right and that's not that's not necessarily bad but it's definitely not sufficient for a personal relationship right right so you can be you can be an ayn rand fan okay i'm fine with that be an ayn rand fan but if you i don't know if you've ever read any of her stuff and you could there's reason she, she gives you know, I'm not saying that I agree with her, but it's, she gives, you know, decent reasons for this sort of kind of a libertarian approach, but very market-based. But when she talks, this is where I vehemently disagree with her because it's ridiculous. Her view of personal relationships as simply a contractual bartering of goods is disgusting. I mean, it's not even, it's not even just wrong. It's gross, right? Yeah. I mean, it's precisely how loving relationships should not be. And it might, you know, if you look at her own personal relationships, you might say, well, that, that explains a lot. So, um, but I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just sort of an example. So, so, but this idea, this emphasis of the autonomous individual, right, is, is a central characteristic. And our, and our understanding of love generally is the autonomous individual is to affirm the autonomous individual in their autonomy and their individuality is to love the person because right. I, because everyone is who I am, who I am. Right. But the only one who is justified in who is justified in saying I am who I am is of course God. Um, all others, when they say that they're blasphemers. So, um, or idolaters, you might say it's probably a better word. Yeah. Okay. So given this idea of love, and we critique their idea of love. And there's, there's, I mean, in fact, there's a great, there's a great, uh, John Zizulis, his book being as communion, which if you've ever read it, maybe you've noticed that maybe you've noticed how much, uh, we are influenced by it. He has a great bit that I'm not gonna be able to find, uh, because I'm looking for it right now where he basically says death is the, the, the biological individual death is the sealing of the person as the individual not sealing as in as in something over your head but the sealing uh of the individual yeah he says death is the natural development of the biological hypostasis whatever the set the session of space and time to other individual hypostases the seal of hypostasis as individuality now, that word hypostasis is a little bit tricky maybe we can that just literally means that which stands under something, the fundamental nature. So if you yourself see yourself as fundamentally an animal, individual seeking to fulfill or become whatever you want to be, then your natural trajectory is death. And so I claimed last time that if we understand love in terms, if we understand love in this sense, which is what Rhett and Link are doing, and again, it's not unusual, it's the standard view of love. I think even among Christians, uh, this is why we struggle with our idea, ideas of love. Um, you you are loving them toward death. So we talked a little bit about what love is and what it, more about what it isn't. Now, now the tricky question. So let's just let's. I'm not going. We're not going to argue for this. Uh, I think I think we could sort of make an argument for this, but but it would take us off on a different path. Um, but I want to I want to try to talk about love as. If love is indeed the fundamental 
value through which we perceive which we should should perceive the world. And again, we could make an argument for that, I think, but it's, it would take a bunch of time, and I'm not going to do that right now. Well, uh, let's say that love is the fundamental way that we per- should perceive the world. That is, when I look at a person, I might be a doctor, I might be a physicist, I might be a biologist, I might be whatever, but the the framework for all of my perceptions of their injuries or their needs, physical needs, or even their psychological needs or whatever, the framework for that is a framework of perceiving the person uh, in terms of, well, in terms of the way Willard put it. So seeing them as more than their parts, as not simply their whatness is the way we said it, but actually the who they are. A lot of that requires engaging the imagination because you can't see who someone is until you really get to know them, then you can start to see who they are. But even then, uh, you see relationships fall apart because they start seeing each other as a what instead of as a who. Um, and by the way, language struggles when we're talking about this. Language is not easily conducive to talking about personhood, um, which is something we may have to spend a little time describing. So if love is the fundamental framework through which I should perceive the world from looking at a person to looking at a mountain or looking at a river, um, uh, if love is the fundamental way that we should perceive the world, what does that, what kind of world do I see? You see a world of value. You see a world of, uh, goodness i think um when you look at i mean before we even get to persons when you look at nature you don't see it as you know you don't look at a forest to be like hmm i could uh i could use all those trees and make a lot of paper or you know do whatever or uh my my kids love wild crafts and there's a a character named Paisley Paver, who every time she looks at land, she anything that's growing on the land is seen as as this this terrible thing because what should should be there should be pavement because pavement is beautiful, and um, you know it, that, that that's not the right way to do it. It, it. When you when you look at nature, you see beauty, you see value, you see um, what's what's good about it. Um, now that doesn't now when you see what's good about it, when there are things that aren't good you also recognize that that's, that's a uh, infringement or a degre- degradation of value. And um, you can recognize that, but you know, love has a lot to do with seeing the value that's there, that's actually there. And um, you know, when we shift it to talking about persons, um, this might sound humorous, but, and it's kind of meant to be, but some people do a really good job of hiding their value, of making it hard to see their value. And so your job, when you look at persons, if love is your fundamental value, when you look at persons, you're looking to see the value that they may be working to obscure or to hide, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the, a value, a, a, um, treating love as the fundamental value means that you are looking for the dignity, the value of, of, of objects and persons and understanding them in their proper relation. It's not that you, you know, I, I think you, we can think of some people who uh, love nature very easily, but they have trouble loving loving people to where they see the, the indignities done to nature and they're like, you know, there, there are people who make the case that it would be best if humanity were to die out. It would be best for the planet if humanity were to die out. And, you know, they are very serious when they make this argument. Um, I would say that that's a fundamental mis- mis- uh, misunderstanding of how the value should be and how value and dignity should be structured. Um, you know, as image bearers of of God, humans kind of are at the top, but as we see when, you know, through the love of, of God, that means we serve. Um, and now I'm, I'm, I'm going on all kinds of tangents yeah. here, but the, well, let me, let me, let me, let me make a note about that because 
the idea, I think most people, when they talk about the value in nature, what they might hear, or when you talk about that, what they might be hearing is, yeah, he's part of the, you know, whatever humans need to be reduced to a hundred thousand, you know, people so that, so that, you know, nature can, nature can recover and heal. But you're not saying that what you're saying is something like we need to be creative in, in serving the world that God has given to us in the same way that God is creative in serving the creatures that he created. Right. And so when I look at nature, I'm just not like when nature runs wild, everything is great. That's yeah. not, that's yeah. not the conclusion. Right. And so if we, if we could just disappear, everything would be great in this earth. No, the idea is that we humans have been given a kind of capacity to, in fact, make things better. And we know that we can do this. Mm -hmm. We can do it with plants flourish under humans in ways that they don't in the wild. Right. Right. I mean, uh, we can create beaut tremendous beauty and wonder and everything. But part of that is not just perceive. When we talk about perceiving the value, there's an imaginative, creative element to it. It's not that I look at it and I see a tree and I'm like, oh, tree. Right. It's that I look at it and, and there's almost sort of like a, I don't even, it's hard to put it into words because it doesn't lend itself to this. It doesn't lend itself to speaking like this, but let me read a little bit from a, from this guy isn't, isn't a believer as far as I know. Um, but here he's talking about the meaning of existence. This guy named, uh, uh, Richard Taylor, I think it's Richard. Is it Richard Taylor? Um, on this little bit on the meaning of life. Um, and let me just, because this describes exactly what you're talking about. This is what he says. He's talking about what, what he's, he says being creative is what makes life meaningful. And he says, uh, there's a bunch of stuff that he says about it, but listen to this. He said, consider two persons looking at a meadow. Did I read this last time? I don't remember. Uh, but consider two persons looking at a meadow. One sees it for its size, its possible value. That is the use to which it might be put. He sees it, in short, only in terms of his own conditioned desires rather than, rather, that is, as an animal would see it. So conditioned desires, so societal conditions, as in how much money can I get out of this? What kind of thing, what kind of resources can I extract from it? So on and so forth. The other, we can suppose, considers none of these things, but is instead drawn to a tiny and insignificant flower at her feet and looks at it in a way that the other person is incapable of viewing it, in a way that no animal can view it. She looks at it creative, creatively, not merely finding it meaningful, but investing it with meanings by her own creative power. This is not the creation of an object, but it is creation just the same. Now, you might say all she's doing is having some sort of like, you know, I don't know, shroom caused experience. She's not doing anything. The other person's actually being a good business owner or whatever. But and it's not that the other person is wrong. That's not even what Taylor's saying, because I don't think he cares about that. It's that one person's that to act in such a way so as to make money. So I look at the meadow and I'm like, I can make this much money out of it. As Christians and as non-Christians, we should all be able to agree that if your only focus is on making money out of this meadow, that's, I guess, cool, but you're not finding meaning in that because that's the same thing every other animal does. Money is just a, it's just a clever way of being animals having more money, right? To have more money just means you have bigger teeth. That's all it means. It's the same thing. <laughs> um, and so you can eat more stuff. Um, you can possess more stuff. Uh, that, that money isn't bad. That's not my point. It's good to have teeth. But uh, to be obsessed with that, to just more and more and more and more and more and more, more is obviously meaningless. It's Sisyphus pushing the stone up the hill. You're all going to die and lose it anyway, right? Um, this other person, she just looks at this tiny little quote unquote, insignificant flower. And in her, what do you want to call it? Relationship with it? She pours out a kind of meaning on it. What does that mean? Well, maybe the best examples of what we do with animals, what we do with pets, right? It drives me insane the way people treat their pets. Like I've got a grand, I got a fur baby or whatever. Um, that is a sin to speak in those terms and Jesus will not forgive that. Um, that's a joke. But uh, we almost bring pets into a different realm of animal living that is beyond what normal animals can accomplish. Um, and it sort of inve and it invests them with a kind of meaning because you look on your animal with love. You see them differently. Um, and so you invest them with meaning. There might be an element in, in, in pet ownership where we do that. 
let me ask a question quick. You keep talking about, you know, investing meaning, you know, in, in, in objects, but we keep talking about the, how an evaluative outlook sees the reality of things. How does the, how, how can one in, invest meaning that is already there if, if what we're saying is right? That's got logical ontology, man. Come on. Next say question. More. Say more. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is what we were talking about in terms of loving other persons, right? Um, that you don't simply see what they are and, and embrace what they are, where they are. Now, you do embrace somebody where they are. But a big part of it, maybe I can give a quick example. So let's say one of my kids, I have an 11-year-old son. So he has a habit of breaking everything he touches, all right, as most 11-year-old boys do. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, he's, he's discovering the world. He's kind of clumsy. You know, he's got a lot of energy and so on and so forth. Um, there are moments where I'm angry at him. And if I were to simply perceive him in that moment, I would only see an annoyance or a difficulty, a problem to be, di to be disliked and annoyed. But I don't see him just in terms of that moment. I mean, at my worst, I do. I'll just see him in that moment. But at my best, I remember, I, I, I hold memories of, of where he has come from, of the experiences that we had together. And at my best, best, I perceive him in terms of what he can be. And it is that that causes, that, that gives you energy, excitement, develops creativity. And so does that mean that his value comes from me? That's a complicated question, I think. Would it be accurate to say that you're investing, you're seeing what he, he could be is a way of helping align your experience of his value and dignity with the value and dignity that's already there. That's just really hard for us to see in another person. Yeah. And I think, I think, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, and I think persons are different than other things. So I think persons contain a level of the language I like to use is actuality, but let's just, we can use who-ness that's there. That's not in a flower, obviously, right? You don't, if you're out talking to flowers, it's probably the shroom speaking, but uh, I keep bringing that up. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm wondering what's in your backyard these days. <laughs> I, I had a conversation with it. No, it's none of that. Uh, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday about this. Uh, who anyway was well, not that I'm using drugs. That's not my point at all. Um, but uh, but yeah, you're if we we almost sort of in fact you might almost call it anthropomorphizing. We sort of do that with nature. And we see where things can be and what they are. And when you just simply to look upon something and see its beauty is itself an act of, I mean, Taylor thinks that's like an act of creativity. You're not really creating something, but you're recognizing something that an animal and, and our so socially conditioned desires wouldn't do. Because my goal is to get more for me, gain power, uh, achieve some sort of notoriety, uh, get money, whatever, whatever the, the condition desires are to be whatever, you know, this or that, but to actually perceive the beauty in something, it's not something a lot of people do. Same with persons. We look at each other's objects, but even at those moments when we sort of accept one another in quote unquote love, it's usually just simply embracing the person where they are as they are without any concern, without any, maybe without even any reflection of what they might be. And so to truly love someone, I think we have to start with sort of accepting them where they are. Mm -hmm. And then you use your imagination to see where they see where they might be. But simply to stop with where they are is not love. Right. You take Han Solo and freeze him in carbonite. That's not love. Jabba the Hutt accepted him precisely as he was. <laughs> right? But that's not that's not how you're that's not a there's no living creature can remain that way. That's not the way you're supposed to be. So I, there, I have to actively engage my imagination as I come to know someone in perceiving their trajectory and wanting it to be the best one for them. That's love. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and I, the, the one caveat I'd want to say is we have to have a, a 
a humble view of what we think the best trajectory is for a person, um, especially with someone you don't really know. You're you're in, you're using a whole lot of imagination when you first meet someone. And you start to think what what's the best trajectory for them because you don't know them, you don't know their experiences, you don't know yes. um, all these things about them. And as you get to know someone, as you go deeper in relationship with someone, it becomes less about imagination and more about understanding who they really are or, or it's not necessarily less about imagination you have a better picture of who the best one they they could be and yes you're still using your imagination to to think about that but it's it's much as a much clearer picture that you can help someone move toward than um the imaginary one that you're using kind of as a step as a step stool to uh to get you started on uh, loving that person well. Yeah. And generally our imagination is extremely limited because we become very focused when we're talking to people, we become very focused on a particular sin or small subset of sins that we think people need to stop doing to be the best they can be. But do people need to stop sinning to be what they're meant to be? Yes, because sin is opposed to being. That's the, that's what sin is. It's it's un it's an undoing of our nature. But if I look at someone and I say, this person, uh, I don't know, he talks about shrooms too much, and I just think the use of I don't know, whatever the drug is, it's in psilocybin or whatever. Um, I think anybody who who's who is talking about shrooms can't be a Christian, and there's just this person's just terrible, right? Um, now, obviously I don't think many people think that way, but we normally, we Christians have a very small subset of laws that we are very attached to that we think to cease breaking those laws makes you the best person you can be. And so that's all we care about. And that is a really bad way of looking at things. Now I'm not saying sin doesn't exist. I obviously am not saying, well, unless you take in Augustian, Augustinian metaphysics in a sense, sin is merely a lack, but, and I, I kind of hold to something like that, but we'll have to, that's, a, that's not what I mean. Sin does undermine us. It undermines our being and it destroys our relationships and it just destroys us. But when we become obsessed with someone based on a particular sin, and we think that the only trajectory that matters is this person stops this sin, right? You're trying to get someone, let me, let's do something small. They're smoking, right? They're smoking. Let's say they're smoking weed. Let's go there. This person needs to stop smoking weed, but I don't care about anything. They just need to stop. Well, it's, have you considered about why they're smoking it? Right. Have you, have you, have you considered the pain that they need to work through? Maybe you need to stop focusing on the weed and start helping the person become healthy. Right now, eventually, hopefully they stop smoking illegal drugs. It's illegal in most places, or, you know, they stop with a particular sort of activities, but we're so focused on these outward externalities of sins that we're not concerned about the person. And this is the problem with legalism is it doesn't care about the person. All it cares about is particular activities that they might, they may or may not be doing. This doesn't mean that it's okay to sin. That's not what I'm saying. And that you should just hug everyone as they are. That's precisely the opposite of what we're saying. Right. What we're saying is that you need to start with the person where they are. Right. And then, and then love them toward, toward, I would say the word would be virtue flourishing. And, and, and for so many people, we are so unaware of, of trauma that they've had in their lives or other things such that it, it takes an act of, of, of trust in God that God will confront them on the sins when they're capable of being confronted in a way that doesn't undermine them so so that say the person i mean we can this is using our imagination again you know the person smoking weed uh they're they're doing it say because they they had some severe trauma in their life and they're not able to relate to people very well and this this allows them to relax enough to where they can actually interact with people and have relationships um now you might be well there's other ways you can and, and that's that's not the point the point is you take away their weed they don't know how to function and suddenly you've undermined so much of them that they're not going to make any progress anywhere else. Now, You've driven them. So now on our pot, Tactical Faith podcast, we're telling people to smoke pot. Oh, Thanks, no, not. Thanks not, for that. That's not. But but the 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 idea is, um, you know, you got to move beyond just thinking. You know what 
particular sins someone needs to deal with in the order that they need to deal with them. Because that that's not how how it, how it works. You know, Jesus meets people. He meets them where they're at. He says, you know, here's the next step. And, you know, it's a step-by-step process. It's not, you yeah. got to fix your life by tomorrow or you're going to hell. Well, and they're, but they're different, right? In some respects. Like he goes to Zacchaeus and he says, let's go eat. He doesn't say anything about the fact that Zacchaeus was a traitor to his people, to the to the worse than Babylon Romans, right? You don't anything about first century Judaism. Being a tax collector wasn't like being a member of the IRS. It'd be like being a tax collector for the KGB in the Cold War, right? It would be more like that. You're running around the United States collecting money to fund the KGB so they can kill your friends. I mean, that's that's how bad a tax collector was back then. And he just says, hey, Zacchaeus, let's go have lunch. And everyone's like, you're insane. And then from that, the health grows. And Zacchaeus says, I'm giving back. I'm going to stop cheating people. I'm going to, you know. But then he talks to the rich young ruler and he looks into and sees him. And he says he loves him. Jesus loved him. And in that moment of love, he said, I, this is the part that the, your, your, your money is holding on to your heart. You need to let go of it. Right? So it, it depends. But the point is, at, in both cases, Jesus looks upon people and loves them for what they might, not only where he loves them where they are for, where, for what they are and, or for who they are. And who they are is not where they are right now, necessarily. Right. It's also what they're becoming, and, what they can be, what they're called to. And, and let me go another step. And, you know, maybe step on some more toes in the process. Um, but what, but I've found for myself, I'll, I'll speak for myself when I can get past the, you know, the rules and, and the focus on, well, here's how, here's how you need to address the rules and the order you need to address them. You know, all the, when I can get past that, I still have a tendency of trying to think that the, the best for that person looks like either me or what's best for me. Not recognizing right. that that different people have different needs and different goods, and I don't want every. I mean, when at at my core, I really don't want everyone to be like me, um, because while I like myself, and you know, there's some good things. Um, I, part of the the greatness of life is is the diversity and and the uniqueness of individuals that we can have variety that we can learn from each other that that you know. Especially in Christianity, you know that the the you know that we're the body of Christ, and you know the the hand can't say to the foot, you know, I don't need you. We we need to be the the people we are meant to be, and we're not going to look like each other, and we need to be okay with that. And that's really yeah. really tough. Even I mean, getting getting past the focus on the particular sins is is super tough, and then getting past the idea that not everyone needs to be like me or be like what, what's best for me is really tough too, because once, I mean, doing that, that is when you really get to the core of what love is about. And that's when you can, can love the person for who they are. And, and that's so tough because all of everything we experience is through our own experience, through our own values, through the things that have happened to us, through our upbringing, all of that. It's really hard to, to genuinely put ourselves in, in, you know, imagine what is it like to be this other person? Not what would it be for me to be in this other person's body with all of my values and experiences, but to try and say, what, what is it like for this other person? And that takes a lot of imagination. That takes a lot of effort and relationship. It's not easy, but I think that's what love looks like. Yeah. And so this, you just brought in a, a really important point, which we've sort of been dancing around, but love is fundamentally interpersonal. Yes. Right. We need we need the pushback of another who. Pushback might be the wrong word. We need to be we need to have that point where we connect with another who that allows or another I um that uh sp- breaks us out of the simple frameworks that we have the simple frameworks and what, what a person should be like and so on and so forth. I think this is part of what happened with the fall. We've talked, Joel and I have talked about this before, but um, I think, you know, why did Adam and Eve recognize that they were naked? What does that even mean? Well, they gained the knowledge of good and evil, or as a Bible project folks say, good and bad. And in so doing, 
they recognized that the other person was now not looking at them, looking at a who of, of who this, this body is a part, but instead looking at the body and judging them. Like there's a sort of like when you're naked, you're exposed, you feel vulnerable and you can be easily objectified. Um, and I, it wasn't until they got the knowledge of good, good and bad where they began or good and evil, where they looked at the other person and they judged and they suddenly realized I'm doing this to them. They're doing it to me. We need to be covered because now we're vulnerable. So that's, that's, I think that's, I think that's good. And, and, and to, to engage with a who, another who gives rise to the capacity for us to truly love because, and this is, for example, I give an example of, of a bad understanding, another bad understanding of love. People who say they love everyone, they're all lying. If you say you love everyone, you're lying. Um, you don't even know what you're talking about. What you, I'm, or maybe I shouldn't say you're lying. It's like, what you're saying doesn't mean anything. I love everyone too, but everyone is an abstract idea that I possess in my head. It doesn't mean I love any particular person at all. It just means I love the idea of everyone, right? And this is Dostoevsky. You read Brothers Karamazov, it comes out in there. Um, it's also in First John, but sort of, but it talks, he talks about it in a slightly different way. So what, you're, what we're called to is love our neighbor because a neighbor is a who with a face that you engage with. Right. And presses back on your simple, on our simple way of framing people, framing things. Cause I can be like, yeah, you people need to stop being legalists about perceiving people. And at the same time, I'm sort of some sort of uh, licentious Christian who thinks everyone should be licentious. And I judge people harshly for, be, for not being licentious. That's stupid too. Right. It's all dumb. That's all dumb. The point is you need to engage a person to see where the health is. A child needs laws. Uh, some adults need laws, uh, a bunch of laws. Jesus set us free from the law, but not so that we could be licentious, but so that our, our righteousness would exceed that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is pretty serious business. Um, but what he's to, what he's calling us to is to be people who love and who live in personal relationships. That is the fundamental. That's the fundamental value. So now that we've spent a whole bunch of time talking about the fundamental value, we talked a little bit about what we perceive in the world. What does this have to do with apologetics? We've just told everyone you're supposed to be nice to each other. Well, I, I think that's a good starting point Not for, nice. for apologetics. I mean, I think that they're, if, if you're focused on loving the other person, then your goal isn't going to be on winning the argument and rubbing it in the other guy's face. It's It's going to be on how can I help that person to see what I see, to, to know the God that I know. Um, it's not going to be um, about winning or making your points um, or scoring points. It's going to be done in a way that's wanting the good of, an, of the other person. And so you might have to try different, different approaches. You might have to try different um, ways of phrasing things. Uh, you have to demonstrate a sensitivity to the, the person you're talking to. I mean, that there are some people who, um, you know, the some of the the language of, of God, you know, has been so misused in their lives that they they aren't comfortable with God language. And so, you know, to that person talking about Jesus is probably going to to do a better job of meeting them where they're at and talk in, you know, that, that being sensitive in that way is loving in, 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 in helping someone see what the faith is, is about, to see how this transforms your life, to see how this helps you live in the reality of who you were created to be. Um, you know, that, that the approach is very um, different. It, it may, you know, still look like um, using some of the, the famous arguments. Um, it might not. It's going to take wisdom that, I guess at its core, apologetics is going to be more about the wisdom of explaining things rather than about presenting the argument to win. Um, it's going to be a, a matter of understanding the situation you're in and acting appropriately and acting accordingly um, rather than than just knowing that I've got these, you know, these arguments, I've got these defeaters of these arguments. And so if my opponent plays this, 
you know, their argument, I've got this to feeder or, you know, how it, 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 it takes away kind of the game element of that. I think is sometimes present in apologetics um, and makes it more yeah. the, 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 the person that you're, you're interacting with um, and, and meeting them where they're at. Yeah. Most of the apologetics we see are between strangers. And so you watch interactions on Twitter and you look at the apologist and because, you know, if you're, if you're a Christian, you like the apologist, but if you're not a Christian, or even if you're just paying attention, you realize a lot of these guys are sort of arrogant jerks. You, you see it when, if an atheist responds in a particular way, like what an arrogant jerk, but that's because they're on the other side. So there is an element here, not, not, and I'll, this is one of the central important elements of evaluative of recognizing evaluative outlooks is it modifies our methods. It, it makes the person central. It makes concern for the person central and, and it makes causing, encouraging them to see what you see, not to force them to agree with a set of propositions, but to see the value that you see. It encourages them to do that. We talked about this, about uh, Joel corrupting his wife so that she likes baseball <laughs> as an example. She sort of likes baseball. But she she uses what is unique about her to to be drawn into the value of baseball, and so she actually perceives it almost a different set of values. But she saw that he valued it, and so and because he loves her and he's showing interest, she's drawn to it. That's what that's the difference, sort of between. Now, I valued about look apologetics. Maybe the simplest way to do it is or to think about it is just when you look when you see someone who's looking at something in wonder. Uh, almost a humble wonder. They're sitting there in awe of something. You can't help but want to know what it is. But if you see someone who comes to you and says, and you probably experience this, over, I experience my kids all the time. Hey, dad, dad, come look, come, come. Hey, dad, 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 come here, come here, come here. Look, 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 look. I'm like, leave me alone. Right. And then they have to try to really convince me to do it. And then I'm like, you know, because I'm a good Christian loving father, I go there and look and I say, great job or great, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but you, you get that idea when somebody's demanding that you come look, you, you withdraw and pull back. But when somebody, when you see someone who is, who is full of love and wonder and he's the first Peter three fifteen, right? Those who see the hope that you have, they're asking you what, what is the source of your hope? Okay. So there, there's a, there's, we might call it a method element, but I want to offer at least one possible. And we talked about whether we were actually wanted to do this before, because it's going to be abused and misunderstood or complicated, or abused, abused is probably the wrong word, but it's probably going to be difficult. It's going to be somewhat difficult to understand because we're, we're talking about things that we, we have bad habits of, of the way that we think about things where when we're talking about personhood, persons, the subject and so on and so forth, we automatically shift into thinking in terms of object in the impersonal and so on and so forth. So it's for, most of our arguments for God's existence seem to argue, and I haven't spent a lot of time detailing how this would work, what I mean by this, but it seems like they argue, arguments for and against God's existence argue about God as a chunk of stuff that happens to be, that happens to be a personal God. Right. I had a I had a student when I was teaching Bible college. He called into the atheist atheist experience show. I think is what it's called. And he, you know, he this is actually part of his project. I mean, he he chose to do it. I didn't. Um, I gave him. I criticized him pretty heavily for this, but it was sort of sort of bold. And he just tried to make a discussion with them. And I remember he, he talked. He tried to give like a cosmological argument, maybe polling from uh, Craig's Kalam version. And they basically said to him, well, why couldn't the thing that created the universe or created the world be a toaster? And he had a hard time responding to that. Like, why couldn't it be a toaster? Because a toaster is a potentiality that's given actuality by human beings. It's not a true actuality. But this, what are we talking about? I would love to spend more time on that. But let's, if... The, the, the point I'm trying to make is the arguments that we make for God's existence tend to refer to, to what God is, but God isn't a what. I mean, we could speak about God in terms of what, but that kind of language is, is automatically kind of wrong. God is not a what. God is a whom. And in fact, three persons in one. And this, this goes back to, let's bring up the word hypostasis. Christianity referred to the three persons of the Godhead as hypostases. 
And that sounds like a girl. That sounds like a cheerleader who has a lot of energy. That's not what we're talking about. Um, a hypostasis, hypostasis literally means that which stands under. And our nor- the, way, the way that we normally think about it is our hypostasis is our biology, is a physics or whatever that makes us what we are. Our personhood is something that's sort of an accidental side effect. So what we really are is the impersonal, the what. And it's nice that we have this who. And that's why we don't love the who and what the who's becoming. We love the what that the who is surrendering to. That's bad love. The right love is to look at the who and want the who to become more who they are. That's actually a very short way of describing everything that we said before, but that gets complicated. So, but just accept it. Um, I have a PhD. So, um, so, so if you, when we look at what we're trying to say about God and what we're trying to say about persons is what we, and what Christianity said was that what is fundamental to God is personhood, not some stuff out of which God is made. God isn't made out of, isn't div- divine clay that got crafted into the, the person of God. God is fundamentally who, not a what, in a way that none of us are, because we're made out of stuff. But we are also, but what is fundamental about us is who's. And we know this because when you say, don't objectify me, what you're saying is don't call me a what, recognize me for who I am. Of course, then we get confused about who we are. But, uh, but objectification is, in fact, wrong if that's the only way you perceive someone. We have to objectify it. Like I went to a chiropractor the other day. He slammed me all over the place, and I feel much better. Um, but what he was treating my body as an object in a way, but it was for the sake of a who. Maybe for the sake of the money, but whatever. So uh, I like that guy now. First time I've ever liked someone who beat me up. So, um, Except for my wife, I guess. Okay. So what is fundamental is persons. And what we're talking about is that if the fundamental way of perceiving the world is through love, then first of all, the fundamental framework for perceiving reality is love, which means there's the neutral way of perceiving the world, the way a dead object would perceive the world, so to speak, is incorrect. That the right way to see things is through love. And the only kind of thing that can perceive the world correctly, therefore, is a person capable of love. Not only that, but then personhood becomes the very purpose of all the impersonal. It becomes, it's not like there's the impersonal and then, oh, by some happenstance, persons came out of it. That's the argument for materialistic evolution, that there's a bunch of stuff and then, oh, look, cool, some sort of persons popped out of it. Well, let's love the persons even though they're sort of an accident and they don't really, they're not really fundamental to nature. And so we got to love persons, but that's sort of a rejection of reality. And so, you know, we accept a little bit of fantasy. So we go our Disney love, which, you know, is where if you just believe, then it sort of makes it true, even though it's not actually true and blah, blah, blah. Or, 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 or we, we love based on, we quote unquote love based on uh, what that person can give. It's more an obsession with, with the power. I look at the person. Then I look at the person like I look at a meadow. Yeah. What can I get out of this? Um, which is really how most of our relationships are, but not mine because I'm perfect. Um, I have a PhD. So, um, that's He's all. using me for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am. So, okay. So if, if personhood is the whole purpose and the meaning of all the impersonal, that is an- another way of saying this is if love truly has value, if it is truly fundamental to who we are, if it is the, the supreme value, then personhood has to be the reason. If it's the reason for all this, then it seems like personhood has to be the source of all this. And not just personhood in the sense that there has to be a person, because person is fundamentally, personhood is fundamentally interpersonal. So what does that get us? Now I've I've made a, a quite a few big jumps. Even though I don't think they're as big a jumps as they, as it may sound. Um, I've taken some big steps. So you can fill in the gaps. Uh, if personhood is fundamental, if love is fundamental, and love is fundamentally interpersonal, therefore love and interpersonalness is the source of all things. What does that get us? 
it gets us a yeah. world. The Trinity. <laughs> it's a, yeah. I mean, that's where there's a big leap. Now, uh, maybe not, maybe not as big a leap. I don't think it's as big a leap as it's, as it seems like, but it's almost, it's sort of like, it's hard for me to, to explain this clearly, but if you understand persons, if persons are something that you can truly come to know, well, you can't know them in the way that you know propositions. You have to know them in terms of interpersonal relationships. That's where imagination comes in. That's where engagement, activity with one another comes in. Um, then first, and, go ahead. And, and, and it's worth emphasizing that it, it's, it's triune. It's not about you and another person getting consumed with each other and getting lost away from the world. But there's something about that you gain in seeing uh, seeing the person you love in relationship with someone other than you that adds to the fullness of who they are, which is, I think, a strong argument for why God is triune and not dyadic. Um, or, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting, if you go back to the church fathers, their, their description of, of why God is three is very, very interesting, especially when we're talking about the Holy spirit, which we a lot, a lot of, I don't, I don't feel like I have the expertise to talk about it, but it's really, really interesting that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy spirit is both the love is considered in some ways, both the love between the, the father and the son, but also is a person of the Trinity so that there's no part that is not person of the Trinity. Anyway, but, and there's, there's other argument. I mean, there's other things we can talk about. Well, why couldn't there be, why couldn't this just be polytheism? Why is it one God in three persons? Well, because love is the very nature of being itself because personhood and love are bound together. And everybody like, well, that means God is made of some substance called love. No, you utterly miss the point if you think that that's what I'm saying. God is not made out of a chunk of stuff called love. If you go to a sort of a, that might have sort of a uh, pantheistic kind of view that the reason we love one another is because we're actually all one already. And so I love you as I love my own body. Eh, no. The person has to be other than you. Otherwise, it's not love. It's just selfishness. So if it pantheism is the case, then I can just be, I can selfishly love everything, but that's, that hasn't gotten us to love. No. Um, and, and, and love is requires an, an, uh, a uniqueness in the other, um, because love is not homogeneity. It's not getting everyone to, to, to match the same, the same print. It, it's love is, is about that dynamic relationship of two or more unique individuals who are help or who are uh, in real in genuine relationship with one another and appreciating who each person is and is becoming and um, and recognizing that that is is beautiful that 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 is growth that is development that is um, yeah that that is uh, I I think with the Trinity that is perfection. Yeah, and when the Trinity is fully actual, so their perception of one another is fully loving as they are, whereas we're we're filled with potentiality. I'm using potentiality. They're fully who they are. We're still wrestling with what we are, and that I think that comes out in Genesis three. And but let's but let's kind of set that aside. That that is one really quick run through, and we could we could do this. I could we could probably spend like four or five uh, podcasts really explaining this, this movement from talking about the value of love to the recognition that love really can't have any value unless the Trinity is the source of all being. Love is sort of a, I mean, it has a kind of value in the same way that I don't know, sugar has value, but it doesn't have any deep metaphysical meaning. It's sort of like, I'm going to and this reminds me of Eric Weinstein's where he talked about, you know, if truth and meaning are opposed to one another, he's willing to set aside truth to hold on to meaning. You don't need to do that. There's a solution. Right. It's right here. Truth and meaning are bound together. But we have a tendency to see truth as purely propositional, objective, and impersonal. And so we try to make our arguments for and against God 
for and against everything, objective, propositional, and impersonal. But you can't argue for a personal God who's hypostatically personal, if I can use it that way, fundamentally personal based on God being made out of some objective substance. Because that's not, God is not a what. Right. So that's, in, my, in many ways, that's my fundamental problem with, with the way apologetics functions. That's my fundamental problem with the way atheists talk about God. They always use the small g to try to throw a little bit of barbs at you. And they say, I don't, you know, like Ricky Gervais and his uh, afterlife show where he says, I don't believe in your God, just like I don't believe in, just like you don't believe in the millions of other gods or thousands of other gods. Uh, this is different. There's a fundamental difference between the God of Christianity and any other God that's ever been talked about, including the monad, monadic gods, like the God of Islam. The God of Islam is not, identic, not identical to the God of Christianity. I, you, you just can't get Trinity and singular monad God. They're not at all the same. They're dramatically different. Yeah. Um, now that we share some history and some sh sort of shared scriptures, even though there's obviously a lot of conflict about how to view those. But, um, and so in some ways you might say that there's some overlap, but that's, so we gave a little bit about, we talked a little bit about evaluative outlooks. We talked about the fundamental evaluative outlook that I think I hope Rhett and Link would share with us. And that is the idea that love is fundamental. Now we've talked about how that applies to method, which we've gone over quite a bit. And we've given one example of how that relates to content, a kind of apologetic argument that still won't work. If you're, if you're using this kind of argument to beat the tar out of someone that you don't like, just because you want to show them that you're right, and your content and your method are directly opposed to one another. Uh, the, the fundamental method that we should be, that we should be manifesting is the method of picking up your cross and giving of yourself for others, not triumphantly walking around with a stick and beating atheists or whatever over the head because you're super smart and you got a PhD, right? That's not, that's not the way that we do it. That's not how Christ did it. And Christ has far more than a PhD, but I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or thoughts, please let us know. I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. <laughs>